Welcome back to the American History Experience. I'm your host, Ryan Pettengill, and today's episode is entitled Native North America. We'll be discussing indigenous societies that existed throughout North America before Europeans made contact. If you joined me the last time, you heard me discussing the societies that thrived throughout Mesoamerica. And of course, I'm talking predominantly about the Mayans and the Aztecs. As you'll see here today, the groups that we'll be discussing are going to be very different. They're going to be much smaller in numbers. They're going to be self-governing in terms of their governance. They're going to be based on power-sharing structures. Many of them are going to implement lineage-based societies. You'll see what I mean soon enough, but for right now, let's launch into a general conversation about the differences between the climates and topography between North America and Mesoamerica. As you're about to find out, this explains a lot of the differences between the societies that will emerge in the two locations. Before we get into the heart of today's conversation, there's a few myths that I'd like to tease out because doing so will help you understand the societies that are going to emerge throughout native North America. The first myth that I've got here for you is that Native Americans somehow, some way, were at one with nature. There is a stereotype that comes from a lot of different places. Bottom line is it's Western biases when it comes to the peoples that made up uh, North America before Europeans made contact. I think a large part of it comes from the way that Native people have been depicted by Hollywood and other forms of mass entertainment. But the fact is, it's a stereotype that I like to call the ecological Native American. That Native Americans were at one with nature and they never did anything to alter their surroundings. I'm here to tell you that that is a huge, huge myth. Native Americans altered their surroundings all the time. They purposefully set forest fires primarily because it was a good way to clear land for more farming. Um, not only did it clear land in a very effective way, but it also fertilized the soil. When those forests burned to the ground, um, it put nutrients back into the soil, which, of course, led to better yields when it comes to uh, harvest season. The other myth that I've got for you involves Native Americans getting along with everyone, including one another. Again, this is an incredible biased view of indigenous peoples because in a way what it does is it puts them on another rung of humanity. It makes them seem as if they're very, very different than the rest of humanity. Well, just like European societies went to war with one another for centuries and centuries, Native Americans had been doing the same thing, and they were doing the same thing centuries and centuries before Europeans showed up. We were talking about recurring invasions from the Aztecs, which historians believe were one of the things that did in the Mayan civilization. The same might be said in Native North America. But in Native North America, what you're going to see are different governing systems that are going to emerge, and in a way, they're designed to kind of get around this violence. Let me give you a quick example. The first thing I want you to do is envision the northeastern part of the United States, and in particular, New York State, the modern-day state of New York, okay? That was once upon a time home to the five nations of the Iroquois people. 
When I say Iroquois, I don't mean a nation state. I'm not talking about like the French or France, right? I'm talking about a language that was spoken widely throughout that region, to a lesser extent, a culture that was shared throughout that region. But the Iroquois consisted of five different nations, the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, and the Seneca. They all spoke the same language. They did business with one another. They were in relatively close contact with one another. But at the end of the day, they very much saw themselves as independent and different from one another. In a way, it's not that much different than the ancient uh, Greek societies, Athens, Thebes, Sparta. You get the idea. In any case, before European contacts, there were a series of vicious wars that were waged within these groups that went to war with one another. And in the end, they had to find a way to get along. And one way that they paved the way to peaceful relations with one another was the establishment of what historians refer to as the Iroquois League. Some people call it the Iroquois Confederacy, but whatever you're calling it, it's an early form of democracy. And if you envision something similar to the modern-day United Nations, think of it more or less as a diplomatic outlet, a diplomatic organization, where groups of people can come together, they can not only air their differences, but they can talk out their problems before they become full-fledged wars. It's not an early form of democracy in the sense that, you know, it's empowering people and guaranteeing rights, but it's a power-sharing mechanism that really emerges out of necessity. In order to stop the violence and stop these civil wars from wreaking havoc on our societies, we need to spread power and decision-making abilities much more evenly throughout our societies. So the Iroquois League is a very good example of a Native American version of democracy and a version of democracy that existed long, long, long before Europeans started showing up in the Western Hemisphere. Let me give you another example, and this is from the other side of North America. In what is present-day New Mexico, the Pueblo people were a very dominant group. And if you think about the climate and the topography in that part of North America, it's going to be a much more difficult growing season. It's going to be a lot more precarious of an existence there as opposed to the groups that we were talking about in Mesoamerica. When we were talking about the Mayans and the Aztecs, I told you at the time that one of the reasons that there were so many more inhabitants there as opposed to North America was that the growing season was longer and frankly it was easier to cultivate food crops. Not necessarily the case in New Mexico. And so because you do have such interdependence. You've got individuals that are very dependent upon one another. It's not as simple as, you know, growing a lot of uh, food crops and putting them on reserve. You do depend on your neighbors and your neighbors also depend on you. And if that's the case, you need to get along and similar to the Iroquois, you need to find a structure, a governing structure that helps you to get along. What the Pueblo developed would be what archaeologists and historians refer to as a moiety. Now, the term moiety essentially boils down and means half. What the Pueblos devised was a plan where half the year, the summer moiety would be in charge and would basically call the shots. 
And then winter came, and what would happen is a different moiety would assume power and control. The winter moiety would rule over the pueblo for the next several months, and then the pattern would repeat itself. And what this is doing is it's it's spreading the, the power and the decision-making processes. It's spreading that out far more evenly than what we would have seen with the Aztecs, with the Mayans. Because when you exist in an environment that is very unpredictable, as New Mexico is and was, you depend on individuals to work together. You depend on your neighbors to work together. And the fact is, it's not going to be as simple as a ruler-prince society where you tell groups of people what they do, and if anybody asks you why you're doing that, you say, well, I'm claiming all the power from God. My point in explaining all of this is not just to tease out some myths. My point in telling you a lot of this is that democracy existed in native North America, and it existed a long time before Europeans showed up. The idea that power-sharing structures, including but not limited to democracies, is somehow some way a claim to world history that's dominated by Europeans is simply not the case. Native Americans, as I like to tell my lecture classes, were practicing forms of democracy a lot longer than democracy became cool. I'd like to provide you with a couple more examples of indigenous North American societies that spread power far more evenly throughout their uh, societies than what we were talking about in our first episode. The first example that we can point to would be the Algonquian people. And very similar to the Iroquois, when I say Algonquian, I don't mean nation-state. I mean common language, common culture that was shared throughout a very specific region of North America. Now, people spoke the Algonquian language as far east as what is present-day New England and as far west as the Great Lakes Basin. But the Algonquian were consistent of nine groups of nations. You had the Algonquian, the Nipissing, the Mississauga, the Potawatomi, the Ottawa, the Ojibwa Chippewa, the Cree, and the Salto Chippewa. So it's very similar to the Iroquois what you had were groups of people who spoke a similar language and practiced a similar culture, but at the end of the day, thought of themselves as very independent. What I'd like you to understand about the Algonquian peoples was, on the one hand, they were sedentary. When you ask your average American to describe uh, an indigenous society, a group of Native Americans, what you'll get a lot of the time would be teepees and buffalo hunters. And as we said the last time, that's not entirely untrue, but it doesn't represent a very large swath of the people that would have called North America home before European contact. The bottom line was, most of the people that existed in the Northeast, as well as the Southeast, as you're about to find out, they existed in a sedentary manner, meaning they built villages, and most of their life was organized around village life. Now, there's a reason that I mentioned the Algonquian peoples, and that's primarily because uh, Europeans, in particular the English, are very much going to engage in relations with them. Now, not always. 
obviously. But in many instances, there's going to be relatively amicable relations between the colonists and the indigenous groups, including the Algonquins. And I believe a big reason, a big explanation for that does happen to involve that the Algonquins were organized at a village level, and the English recognized that. That was something that was recognizable that they were coming from, from their English societies. Nonetheless, the English did make plenty of faux pas at the same time. Do you remember how I mentioned a few minutes ago that a lot of these North American societies were organized in a lineage basis? What I mean by that is you inherited the right to use the land, not necessarily own the land. And so when the English would go to a group of Native Americans and ask them how much they wanted for this plot of land, on the most basic of levels, that really didn't compute, right? It was an error message. And the reason for that was in the Native American culture, you couldn't really own and possess land. Um, you, you, you could work it, you, you, could, you, could, you could take the fruits from it, but you couldn't really own it. And even if you could, the English were talking to the wrong group of people. Naturally, when the English went into negotiations, they went and they consulted the men. They went to the male Algonquians. And what these men told the English pretty quickly is, you're barking up the wrong tree. If you really want to learn how you can use the land... Um, you need to talk to my sister, you need to talk to my wife, you need to talk to the women. Because in the Algonquian culture, it was women that controlled the land. It, it was not the men. Men generally left the village. They left for hunting purposes and for purposes involving war. Meanwhile, it was women that stayed behind and cultivated the fields. As a matter of fact, over 90% of the caloric intake for many of these Algonquian groups, it was produced by women. And as a result of all of this, women are going to occupy a very important role in Algonquian governing societies. The Algonquian women are going to exercise an enormous amount of power and control over day-to-day -day governance, and that's going to be something that really sets this group of people apart from the other groups that we've talked about thus far. Now, there are both similarities as well as differences uh, between the groups of the Algonquians that exist predominantly in the northeastern part of uh, North America, as opposed to the groups that comprise the southeastern part. Now, long before Europeans started showing up in the Western Hemisphere, there was a group of indigenous peoples that referred to themselves as the Kusa. And the Kusa had established this vast network. Really, what it was was a trade network, but you might think of it more or less as some form of empire. And they had trade routes that stretched far, far into the southwestern part of North America, well into the northeastern part of uh, North America. And these trade routes were bringing things that were not indigenous to the southeastern part of the United States back into uh, that area that was ultimately enriching the Kusa chiefdom. Now, although the Kusa had long died out by the time that Europeans started carving up the uh, Western Hemisphere, uh, they were the ancestors of your more modern tribes, including the Caddo, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Creek, and the Seminole. 
And very similar to some of the other groups of North America that we've discussed so far, they had a very unique way of governing their societies. First of all, the Southeastern groups are probably the most complex political group of uh, indigenous people that we'll be discussing. They were organized, you might even say, at a microscopic level. A lot of historians, myself included, refer to this as the town government. And so while we tend to think of groups of people like the Caddo, for example, as a nation that was static and never changed, the fact of the matter was the Caddo were constantly ebbing and flowing. There were identities that were beginning to embrace alliances with one group and, you know, identities that were forged with another, only to give way in a few short years. Now, at the same time, um, as we've mentioned before, there's a lot of mythology out there with respect to Native Americans. And the groups of the Southeast had their differences. And I don't just mean, you know, conquering an empire and things of that variety, but something as simple as who has the right to fish in this region? Who has the right to, to hunt in, in these forests? Okay. Now, one way that these natives um, uh, uh, settled their differences uh, when it was something along those lines, fishing rights, hunting rights, uh, was a game that was played uh, that we'd probably recognize today, probably being closely associated with the modern-day game of lacrosse. You had a stick and sort of a basket on the top of this stick, and the whole idea is to throw a ball uh, at a target. The Cherokee in particular called this game stickball, and what it was was a game where the outcome determined who had the right to fish in one part of the region or another. But bottom line was, it was a peaceful way to settle differences. It was a way that you could say, well, you know, I don't really want to go to war with this group of people. They are my neighbors, and I care about them in some way. But at the same time, I very much want to fish in this particular river. And so therefore, what we're going to do is we're going to have a game, and if our people are better stickball players than their people, then they will recognize that and will have access to this. And if their people are better, then we'll, we'll return the favor. Now, there's another element of this that I'd like you to understand with respect to the way that the Southeastern groups are setting up their societies. It's not that much different than the Pueblo that we were talking about a minute ago. When there were peaceful relations, when the group was not at war, there were a group of rulers that would be called the white government. Now, the white government would rule as long as we were in a time of peace, but if there was an outbreak of war, the white government would give rise to the red government. And of course, by red government, I mean the people in charge during a time of war. So, as you can see, there's a lot of nuances and specificity with respect to the way that the groups of the Southeast shared power in that capacity. Long before there were railroads that crisscrossed the central part of the United States, um, there were nomadic peoples that called that region home. Now, I say nomadic peoples because they moved around very frequently. The question becomes why. You think about the modern-day states that comprise 
the central part of the United States. Kansas, Nebraska, parts of Minnesota, parts of Missouri. We think about this region today and we think about the breadbasket of the United States because we do produce an enormous amount of food crops in that region. But there's something that you have to take into consideration. It's the breadbasket of the United States on the one hand because we have sophisticated forms of irrigation. Um, we found out the hard way what happens when you have a lack of rain. In the 1930s, this was called the Dust Bowl because what you had was soil erosion for lack of precipitation. And what's going to come out of the Dust Bowl is, in a way, a, a, a federal government that's very, very active with respect to supporting agriculture. Well, long before the 1930s and long before Europeans made contact with North America, the groups of Native Americans that called this region home didn't bother with agriculture, not really, because the topography and the climate simply wouldn't support it. Now, in terms of the groups that would call this region home, one group that I'd like you to be mindful of would be the Shoshone. These are going to be peoples that exist in these small bands. They're going to lack a larger governmental hierarchy, but just like we were talking about with the Iroquois or the Algonquin, by Shoshone, I mean more or less shared culture and not a nation state. With respect to the nations, I'm talking about groups like the Blackfoot, the Crow, the Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, and the Comanche. And as we've established predominantly by analyzing the groups that consisted of the southeastern part of what would become the United States, there's a lot of ebb and flow. There's a lot of identities that are shifting, and we don't have any static definitions of what would define one group as opposed to the other. There's another group of the Plains natives that I'd like you to be mindful of, and that would be the Great Sioux Nation. Now, similar to the Shoshone, I'm not talking about a nation, so to speak, as much as I'm talking about a confederacy. Um, you've got the Eastern Dakota Confederacy and the Western Dakota Confederacy. And similar to the Iroquois League, there are power-sharing structures that are designed to more or less promote a coexistence uh, within these groups of people. Now, there's one last example that I want to make mention of with respect to this group, and that is the Anaki. The Anaki is going to be a group of clan elders that is going to be, if you think of it more or less like a board of trustees, you'll have the right idea. These are groups that would ultimately make decisions for these indigenous peoples that are going to exist on the Plains states. So very consistent with the other groups that we've talked about thus far, there are power sharing structures and mechanisms that are being put in place that had existed for centuries before Europeans started showing up. And a lot of the reason for this has everything to do with the climate and the topography very different than the groups that we talked about with respect to Mesoamerica and the things that you can do in that part of the world you can't get away with in other parts. I want to leave you with one last example with respect to Native American democracy, forms of democracy that existed long before Europeans showed up in the Western Hemisphere. 
The Wyandotte were a confederacy of Native Americans that existed predominantly in southwestern Ontario, so Canada. And as I said just a second ago, they really weren't a nation in so much as they were a confederacy, a group of people that had common interests, that spoke a common language, and practiced a common similar culture, but at the end of the day, thought of themselves as very different. And just like we live in the United States, uh, the present-day United States, there's not a lot that the present-day state of New York has in common with the present-day state of Utah. And every once in a while, we get into these squabbles, we get into these differences, and we need to have a way to settle our differences. And in a lot of instances, what this comes down to would be a constitution. If you think about the term constitution, most Americans, today anyway, would, would probably begin to articulate what is really the Bill of Rights, that you have a right to free speech and a right to bear arms and a right to a trial by jury. It's a part of the Constitution, but really what you're talking about would be the Bill of Rights. If you think about the U.S. Constitution today, basically what that document says is, this is the part of government that is in charge of that power, and this is the extent of their power. Quick example, Congress has the power of the purse. It's the power of Congress to raise taxes and spend money, and it articulates the extent of that power. Well, because the Wyandotte were a collection of people that thought of themselves as independent, they had to find a way to spread power more evenly throughout their society. So ultimately, what they're going to come up with would be what historians refer to as the Wyandotte Constitution. Now, this is a very vivid form of Native American democracy because what this is going to do is it's going to spell out what group is in charge of what and what extent of power that reaches into. It's a way to survive in a precarious environment where you depend on your neighbors and your neighbors depend on you. So as you can see today, this group of indigenous peoples that comprise North America is going to have little in common with the group that we talked about with respect to Mesoamerica. And you're also going to see numerous different power-sharing structures, all of which will make an impression on the Europeans that will arrive later on. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the American History Experience. I'm hoping that by now you can see how instrumental Native American societies were when it comes to the development of American political thought. The power-sharing structures that were implemented across the North American continent at various times had a profound impact on future American political thinkers, including, but not limited to, people like Thomas Jefferson. Please join me for episode three, which is entitled Western Encounters. If you do, you'll see how the continents of Europe, Africa, and North America are increasingly intertwined in the years that follow 1492. That's it for now, and I hope to see you again soon.